Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is the innovator and serial entrepreneur, James Alexander. Now, James is a titan in the biodiversity world, having spent much of his career caring about sustainability and nature. He is the chair of Finance Earth, an interesting social enterprise that seeks to protect and restore nature by using market-based mechanisms and financial tools. He's also the chair of the Suffolk Wildlife Trust and AgriCarbon UK. Now, we discuss these roles and the challenges he and his teams are trying to overcome. We also discuss James's previous life as the co-founder of Zopa, one of the first peer-to-peer lending platforms he co-founded well ahead of the curve in 2004. James is a legend and was recognised as such this year when he was awarded an MBE for his volunteer services to the natural environment. I hope you enjoy this one. This is the Why Invest podcast. James Alexander, welcome to the podcast. James, I want to start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? But it's lovely to be here. Thank you, Doug. I was born in Weymouth. My father was in the Navy. And so with mum and my two brothers, we sort of moved around the country a bit and in later life lived in Italy and a few other places. Basically grew up in Dorset, uh, was lucky enough to go to Sherburn for my senior school, had a lovely time there, then went on to read engineering at UCL and decided civil engineering wasn't for me because the sort of seven years to get chartered or whatever didn't appeal. I ended up finding my way into management consulting, strategy consulting uh, for LEK. And at some point, I went to business school at NCAD, mm-hmm. left there, joined a business called Egg, uh, which is one of the uh, sort of early dot-com digital banks. So your, your background is sort of corporate and consultancy, and you've had a good degree of exposure to the sort of startup world. What happened after Egg? Yeah, I had, uh, was incredibly lucky at Egg, worked with some amazing people who were really at the sort of vanguard of thinking in new ways about you know, retail financial services. And I actually left with a couple of friends, Richard Duval and Dave Nicholson. And with a few other people, we decided that we wanted to work together to create uh, something new. Only challenge was we didn't have any ideas. Uh, but Richard was very clever. And uh, Richard said, look, if we're going to create something new, then we need to have a view on the future. Not in an arrogant intellectual sense, but because if we had a view on the future, then we could stand in that future and think about what consumers might value. And I could tell a long story about that. I won't. But that eventually led to Dave coming up with the idea of Zopa. The many people that won't know what it is was the world's first peer-to-peer lender. Uh, and in a nutshell, that was people lending and borrowing from each other, mm-hmm. doing that on a digital platform, and in so doing, cutting out the banks. And the benefit of that was effectively a lower cost transaction, uh, partly because of operating cost, but also because of regulatory cost. A bit like if I was to borrow £100 off you, Doug, mm-hmm. you could give that to me and you wouldn't uh, at the time have needed to have put some regulatory capital in your back pocket. And uh, mm-hmm. I could have paid you back over time and hopefully we could have agreed an effective interest rate and I would get a cheaper cost of borrowing and you uh, would be happy with your return because it would be more than savings, uh, but probably not quite as much as if uh, someone had invested uh, with Waverton. I mean, that's kind of visionary because this was 2004, 2005. Yeah, Dave came up with the idea in late 2004. 
Yeah. And it, it was sourced really from a number well, of areas. You know, this wasn't a, an app. You know, this was earlier internet because, you know, we are now in a, in a time where sort of peer to peer lending is, is ubiquitous. But back then, it really wasn't, was it? Uh, absolutely, it wasn't. So I don't think the iPhone was invented until 2007, if that gives yeah. some kind of scope. But Dave was really clever because he asked himself a series of questions. He said at the time eBay was going ballistic in the UK. And Dave said, well, what would happen if we listed £100 on eBay? What would we get for that? And so the question was sort of, what if eBay did money? Uh, the second question was basically all of the lending and borrowing that goes on within families or within community groups. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I went to INSEAD, I needed to borrow some money to pay for my year there. And I went home to mum and dad, and kindly they remembered me. And my dad, being Scottish, said, well, look, I'm happy to lend to you, but you're going to have to pay me for it. And I said, well, of course, dad. And he said, well, you know, what can you borrow this for? So I went along to Lloyd's Bank and said, Lloyd, what can you lend to me? And they said, oh, it'll cost you about 7%. And I went home to dad and had a haggle with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and we agreed a rate. And the good thing about that was I could take the money when I needed it rather than in you know, a lump up front. And I could pay it back as I earned salary or earned a bonus or got lucky in some other way. So that was the second way in. The third way in was looking at how markets more widely had developed. So, of course, you know, if you go back in the days to uh, people going off on their ships in the 1700s to the, discover spices in the West Indies, the entrepreneur might have met in a coffee shop on the docks of London, uh, found a, an investor that was willing to lend and that project be invested in. And, of course, over time, that became what we now know as the bond market, so a much more liquid, transparent market. And Dave asked himself the question, well, what if there was a bond market for individuals? What if I could say, you know, hi, I'm James. This is me. Here's my credit rating. Who wants to lend to me? And to sort of bring that into the modern day. So those ideas of eBay for money, a bond market for individuals, mm -hmm. lending and borrowing in communities all got put together, mm -hmm. together with, I guess, observations on what wasn't working in banking to create SOPA. I just want to focus a little bit longer on, on SOPA. I do want to come on to your sort of more current career because it was a bit of a, a pivot. Mm -hmm. But... What were the sort of key challenges way back then when you were trying to scale this business? And bearing in mind, this was, as I said, this was 2004, 2005. The web looked very different and people's perception of addressable markets and, and scalability probably felt very different back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be clear, I personally failed in scaling it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, others might take that credit. God, there were so many problems and so many difficulties wandering. I mean, the first thing was, they came up with this idea. We found some brilliant lawyers at Slaughter and May and Lovells who were willing to just help us because they, they thought this was an interesting new idea. And eventually we sort of noodled through and found out that there was a way through regulation to make this happen because, mm -hmm. funnily enough, the 1974 Consumer Credit Act hadn't thought of this. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we went along to the forerunner of the FCA, the FSA, and said, look, we're coming. We're going to launch in a year's time. You probably want to regulate us. Now, in reality, it took 10 years until regulation for peer-to-peer -peer got onto the statute book. So if you like, we were, because we were a market pioneer, we were to some extent operating in a, in a gray area. And in fact, when we did eventually launch, the following weekend, uh, we were being interviewed on Moneybox on Radio 4. And halfway through the interview, um, the interviewer sort of said, well, we hear that you're under investigation by the FSA, at which point we politely suggested that the interview was stopped. Because I think the banks have kind of lobbied them and sort of said, this thing must be shut down. And they then crawled all over us for a month and gave us a clean bill of health because we were doing things correctly in the right way and had all of the appropriate regulations and had uh, got fantastic advice, uh, including, by the way, from Tony Blair's brother. 
who it turns out as a leader, Queen's Council, as it was then. Mm-hmm. When we did actually launch, the other issue is when you launch any credit business is all the people you don't want come to you. So every fraudster, hacker, you know, mm-hmm. everything else. And we got very, very lucky with our launch. We, we ended up somehow on, uh, there must be no news that day because we were one of the BBC's sort of top five news stories for the day, which meant they took us across all of their platforms we were on the six o'clock news. We were on the front page of four broadsheets. And that was good in one way because it then became a conversation. But actually, and perhaps rightly, most people sort of said, well, this is an intriguing idea. Let's, let's wait and see. But of course, every fraudster and hacker came at us, which was fine because we were prepared for that. But that was difficult. The other quite fun thing that happened was we also started to get the very first emails in from Russia. Because JOPA, which actually stands for Zone of Possible Agreement, which mm-hmm. is a negotiating term in Russia, means asshole. So uh, we obviously worked very good at our branding. <laughs> I see the superb. So clearly, entrepreneurship is in your DNA. But then there was a pivot away from fintech and financial services. I wonder what drew you in the first place to to sustainability and biodiversity. Yeah, well, actually at school, um, funny enough, when uh, most teenage boys are looking at girls, I got into looking at birds and became a bird watcher. And Sorry, I should have said ornithology is in your DNA rather than ornithology. <laughs> <laughs> so something's in my DNA. Yeah, yeah. And I, to be honest, I had no idea why I got into it. But what I found over time was that I really enjoyed being outside and looking at something. And, and perhaps as, I don't know, someone who's interested in architecture might walk through London and see something very different to me or uh, if I'm interested in fashion, you walk into a room and notice a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, I really liked noticing things outdoors and nature in particular. It took me to great places, and it was also challenging. It's quite difficult sometimes to identify things. But I got into that. I got very lucky at university with two friends. We went on an expedition to a curious country called Santomé and Principe, which is about 250 miles off the west coast of Africa in the Gulf of Guinea. And we refound three species of bird that were meant to be extinct. And so that got me more into it, and in particular around actually how do you protect areas, uh, because the reason that these birds were thought extinct was that most of that island had been cut down to make cocoa plantations. It was the world's largest producer of cocoa in 1900. Uh, That's where Cadbury's got most of their chocolate from. And that increased my interest in in conservation and actually how do you protect things and made me more aware of what was being destroyed. And I was later, again, got lucky and became a trustee for RSPB, uh, which which put me more more front and centre. And on one of our annual sort of trustee trips to go, go and see work going on in the field, they took us up to the Lake District and in particular to Horsewater. So for those of you that don't know, Horsewater is one of the largest reservoirs, provides much of the drinking water to the northwest into Manchester. And um, we stood on this very wet, cold hillside overlooking Horsewater and uh, the RSPB were rabbiting on about, you know, all of the brilliant work that they've been doing to bring back nature to you know, uh, wet peat, to you know, take uh, intensive grazing off the land, to plant native trees in the right places and all of that kind of good stuff. And then a guy from the local water utility, uh, United Utilities, who was part of the group, said, well, you never guess what. Um, this is all very good for nature, but one of the benefits of this is it means that the water that now runs into our reservoir is much cleaner than it used to be and has far less nutrients in it. And that's important because it means that we no longer have to make the 50 million pound investment in a new water treatment processing plant. 
And my ears pricked up and I sidled around to the, the then uh, CFO uh, of the RSPB and said, so how much of that have we seen? To which I got a blank look. Mm-hmm. And it, it started my thinking, this is about 2013, started my thinking around, well, there must be a way in which, in which finance can play a role in helping restore nature. And what if these ecosystem services, as they're called technically, what if there's a way in which they could earn income to repay investors and what might that look like? So in, in the United Identities case, what if they paid for cleaner water? So, well, that leads us perfectly on to introducing Finance Earth. Can you give us a sort of elevator pitch for Finance Earth or an idiot's guide? <laughs> and Finance Earth was started by two idiots, <laughs> uh, not me, Jamie Mansfield and Rich Speak. So uh, they should take all the credit for this. Mm-hmm. What it is, is it's a, uh, it's a social enterprise, 100% employee-owned, and its purpose is to help finance work for nature, climate, and communities. So the challenge on the planet from a nature perspective is nature is dying in a nutshell. If you look at WWF and ZSL's report, something like 69% of the world's population of animals has been destroyed in the last 50 years. So it's quite a dramatic decline. If you listen to the World Economic Forum, 50% of Global GDP is underpinned by nature, and about 30% of what we need to do to reduce climate emissions could be achieved through nature-based solutions uh, between now and 2030. So nature underpins, well, I would say nature underpins communities or society, and society underpins business. And so if if you remove the bedrock from the bottom be that climate, be that biodiversity, then you know, both society and business will ultimately fail. Mm-hmm. And so what Finance Earth is aiming to do is to work with organisations that are hell-bent on you know, restoring nature, which obviously also oftentimes removes carbon from the atmosphere, and channel large-scale private finance uh, towards filling the enormous funding gap for nature that exists around the world. A clear value proposition, and it reminds me of a previous podcast guest, Dominic Scribbin, the chairman of Dragon Capital, who is also very active in the biodiversity space and tries to link finance to biodiversity by saying, you know, what price do you attribute to the lack of birdsong? How do we codify and quantify that? And I think it's it's quite an interesting thought experiment. Um, I wonder then in finance earth. Where does the equilibrium of the business lie? Are you talking to governments? Are you talking to consumers? Are you talking to corporates who are trying to do better in this space? Where do you spend your sort of excess time? Yeah, so the challenge we're trying to solve is to grow private investment into natural capital would be the shorthand. And we do that in two ways, but supported by a third. Uh, So we're, we're a regulated financial advisor. We're a regulated fund manager. So we spend that time and attention there, but we also spend a lot of time and attention in helping build the market. So this market doesn't yet really exist. And so to come more directly to your question, we principally work uh, or initially started working in the UK with the NGOs. Uh, so they were our advisory clients, but increasingly corporates are now major clients. So they're being driven, of course, by you know, casually the, the ESG mm-hmm. agenda or more specifically things like the task force for carbon financial disclosures and the equivalent for nature, TNFD, but also governments as well. And so governments are seeking advice on how best to structure regulation, how best to encourage the markets and set policy to crowd in private finance because they understand that 
you know, government alone can't fix this problem. And so, so we need to create markets here. Mm. So a lot of our time is about creating markets. So creating markets, presumably you are therefore operating what is a growth market. I wonder how you distinguish between growth and returns for shareholders, because yes, you know, you, this market could balloon, but there's a big difference between a ballooning market and a high returning market. Yes. So we tend to think about impact and quality and integrity. So as a social enterprise, our focus is on ensuring that positive impact is delivered for nature, but that's done in a way that equitably shares the financial gains uh, across different partners uh, invested. And I think what you're alluding to is, as with any high growth market where all of a sudden there's a new opportunity, Mm -hmm. the reality is both goodies and baddies Mm -hmm. uh, show up. And if we were to look at the carbon markets, for example, I'm going to say there is huge amounts of bad practice and gouging from people that are coming in to take a massive cut. And I'm going to say typically that's taken by the finance portion Mm -hmm. um, with very little being passed back to communities or left for the projects on the ground, which obviously risks their integrity and, you know, in a way undermines the development of a a high quality, high impact market. So we're the antithesis of of that, but there is a lot of bad practice around, uh, as there is in the creation of any new market. Yeah, well, it's a bit like, as you were saying earlier, that time, you know, when you started the early days of Zopa, you know, where you would have bad actors coming at you and, and trying to undermine the business. I wonder, therefore, what does your sort of ideal client look like? You know, there must be there must be an awful lot of education in your industry. You know, it must be about trying to sort of guide people through quite a, uh, a new area for them. Um, do you spend a lot of time sort of on the knowledge sharing side of your business? Yes, building that. Just, just going back to, you know, the bad actors. As with Zopa, once Clever Dave came up with the idea of, of peer-to-peer lending, at that point, everyone thought, ah, right, we'll launch a peer-to-peer lender. Now, of course, it wasn't very long until the first few of those started failing because they weren't designed correctly. Mm-hmm. And others were coming. I think at one point, there was over a 1,000 peer-to-peer lenders in China or something bonkers like that, which was all sorts of fraud going on and money disappearing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that that's exactly what's been happening in the carbon markets. And certainly in, in the nascent nature markets, we, together with others, want to attempt to limit, uh, you know, ideally not allow that to happen. But typically, the regulation and policy follows. Uh, it, it often doesn't lead. And so there's a challenge of how do you establish a, a quality sort of threshold. And so we spend a lot of time working with others to create reports or guidance for the market. Again, the high-quality players coming together to do that. We're, for example, at the moment working with the leading ENGOs, environmental NGOs in the UK, to develop a set of principles that help define what high-quality is Mm -hmm. and to get those out in the market because the chances are that will happen prior to the market putting in place the regulation to do that appropriately. So who's leading the charge on this? Which policymakers um, across the world, I suppose, are leading in this area of sort of sustainable finance? Uh, I would argue that America is ahead in some markets. The UK is ahead in some markets. There's growing initiatives from World Economic Forum to establish principles. There's obviously, there's also global codes, uh, codes of practice that exist out there. So for example, the Peatland Code, uh, which basically defines what it is to restore peat and 
how much carbon is generated from a particular project. That's a global standard that's uh, in, in place from the IUCN. So it's pockets. Um, the UK, in terms of its market development, is up there. Uh, there's a lot more to do. And definitely the market is ahead of policy. Um, right Where does now. the intransigence come from? Or is there intransigence uh, that you're up against? I mean, do you, you know, if you're speaking to, say, landowners, for example, do they say, oh, is there a sort of eye rolling um, exercise of, you know? Doug, are you a landowner? <laughs> no, I, no, I was a landowner. <laughs> um, is there an eye rolling where they say, oh, God, well, we've been here before, haven't we? Yeah, I think there's, I'm going to say, appropriate caution. In, in the same way as there was for for Zopa, you know, mm-hmm. let's let's watch and let's wait and see. And mm-hmm. as with any market, there are the early movers and the pioneers, and you know, at some point the the you know the main mass market will come through, and then there will be laggards. Certainly, both landowners and those that service landowners are now absolutely building their their models around the the value uplift that can be generated from carbon and nature-based solutions and factoring that into the value of an asset. So mm-hmm. if you like, the, the financial lens is starting to play its part in how people think. And it can be a double-edged sword. So for example, if you're a, you own land in Scotland, and for example, you have a lot of peat, mm-hmm. um, you might think, oh, well, you know, I've got my peat, I'll sh- I shall just leave it in the ground. But actually, unless peat is looked after properly, mm-hmm. it erodes and goes into the air and contributes to climate change. Mm-hmm. So actually, you might have a, a wasting asset mm-hmm. that you probably need to do something about in order to secure its value. So again, different markets have different characteristics. But there is there is intransigence. There's also the argument, you know, food or nature. Should we rewild or should we grow food? Yeah. You know, we need both, right? There isn't an either or. I think the politicized world in which we sort of live in is, is often not helpful because I think these conversations are more nuanced and more subtle. Yeah. It's amazing how often these quite complicated nuanced discussions get distilled into sort of binary outcomes. Fuel versus food was another one. Um, what then do you think the future holds for finance earth? And, you know, where do you want to see the business in, in, let's say, five years' time? What would you want to be doing? What projects do you want to be working on? Um, I'm, I'm going to answer, but not by talking and leading with Finance Earth, if yes, I may. Um, what I hope is that there's a burgeoning market for investing in the restoration of nature on our planet. If I was to overstate it, I think nature will kill us before climate does. Mm-hmm. Just so, unpack that. What does that mean? So nature will kill us. Well, where did COVID come from? Where did COVID come from? Um, well, it may have come from um, yeah, human interaction again. with the forests. Yeah. Uh, where does bird flu come from? Again, similar. So you know, humankind yeah. encroaching and coming into closer proximity with nature is, is an issue. More than that, if we, you know, if, if we kill bees, we don't have food pollinated you know so those kind of obvious things if we don't have functioning ecosystems we won't have clean water Mm. so genuinely society falls apart quite quickly without nature and my assertion is that most people are unaware of the decimation Mm. of nature and in part because it's it's a bit complicated so climate change obviously you know some people would say it took 50 years until anyone, anyone took it seriously. But it's also quite easy to distill because you, you end up with a measure, a single measure, carbon, a ton of carbon. And sort of people can understand that and sort of understand what it takes in order to do it. Ecosystems are a bit harder, partly because actually even scientifically we don't understand them. And then even more so in that we don't necessarily know what the tipping points are on certain ecosystems. So 
It might surprise some of your listeners to know that you know when you eat pork uh, in the UK, it's probably been grown at least in part on soy, and that soy might have been imported from Brazil, where rainforest is continuing to be cut down in order to grow the soy, in order to import it. And so, eat bacon for your breakfast. You know, cut down trees in Brazil. That's decimating nature. That's contributing to climate change, and yet many people will be uh, unaware. If we have a biscuit, it's probably got palm oil in it. The same, mm-hmm. the same rings true. And we're destroying nature at an alarming rate: sixty-nine percent decline in all living things since nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. To put that in human terms, that's that's the same as you, Doug. You know, right now, going and killing everyone in North America, everyone in Europe, everyone in Asia, everyone in India, just wiping them all out. That's what we're doing to nature on our planet. It's staggering, isn't it? I want to round off by asking what I normally ask on this podcast, which is advice. And particularly to our younger listeners, what advice would you give to them who are starting out in a career, either in entrepreneurship or indeed sustainability? What advice would you give to them and what skills do they need to equip themselves with to be successful? You know, let's not think maybe in the next five years, but 10 years, 15, 20 30 years' time, what do you think they need to prepare themselves for? I think what I would say is that the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are not going to go away anytime soon. And therefore, in whatever walk of life you're in and whatever you're doing, being cognizant of the links between your actions, be that you know, in your life or within business, and their impacts in those domains is going to come under increasing scrutiny over time. That's clearly starting to happen. If you're a major global corporate now, these agendas you cannot ignore. And I would argue that in most large companies, everyone's job is about climate. Everyone's job uh, is about nature. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, the same rings true. And dare I say, if you're an investor, the same rings true. And I think that can also be because that fits with your value set. Or it could be purely because you're a mercenary that wants to maximise their return over time. And I think if you have a you know, anything other than a short time horizon in your mind, then these issues are really, really important. James Alexander, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, James Alexander. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, Why not like us, subscribe to us, let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.